Hola, you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live in the middle of a developing tourism town? Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't come without challenges. Like most people listening, I had a steady job, lots of stress, worked my ass off so I could enjoy vacations. One day, I came to the realization that I needed to embed myself into a vacation permanently. So that's what I did. Now my home is San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. It's a small town on the Pacific coast with a population of about 15,000 people. I have a small sailboat charter business which pays the bills and leaves a bit left over to cover my habits. And even though we call it paradise, Nicaragua is still a third world country. So picture this, 36-year-old Texas guy and his two trusty Labradors are transplanted into a developing country and they're trying their hardest not to stick out like sore thumbs. These are the stories of what life is like, some good, some bad, but all entertaining. So sit back, relax, and live vicariously through me for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. And I promise you, this stuff can't be made up. On a freight train leaving town, not knowing where I'm bound, and no one could change my mind but Mama tried. A one and only rebel child from a family meek and mild, my mama seemed to know what lay in store. In spite of all my Sunday learning, to the wrong I kept on turning. Till mama couldn't hold me anymore And I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right But mama tried Mama tried Mama tried To raise me better But her pleas I denied That leaves only me to blame Cause mama tried My dear old daddy Rest his soul Left my mom a heavy load She tried so very hard to fill his shoes Working hours without rest Wanted me to have the best She tried to raise me right, but I refused And I turned 21 in prison And without parole No one could steer me right, but mama tried Mama tried, mama tried to raise me better so my mom just left town yesterday and I've learned to quit promising that people are going to come do guest appearances on this podcast because it doesn't happen had every intention of getting my mom to sit down and talk about all her experiences and all the adventures that we had, but it never happened. What, what I did wrong was wait until the last minute, right before she was supposed to go, so I could get everything recorded, and then she was like too tired, and it just didn't work out. We kind of ran out of time. So I apologize for creating false hope in everyone's lives that's waiting for my mom to be on here, because it's not going to happen until next time. But hopefully, you'll stay tuned. So the day that my mom arrived, I was considering driving my truck to Managua to pick her up. But then I realized that it cost me about 50 bucks in fuel to get there and back. Or I can pay someone $70 to drive me there and drive me back. And I don't have to use my fuel and I can sleep the whole time if I want. So that's what I did. I got Byron, the taxi driver extraordinaire, to drive me there. And we also had to do some running around in Managua before I got to the airport. 
And uh, Byron knows a couple little back ways that I don't know, and I wanted to ride with him at least once to see those shortcuts. So we get to the airport, and my poor mom, I've got her loaded up with all kinds of stuff from Amazon.com, like loaded down with new flip-flops, shoes, hiking boots, some stuff that I need to take on my trip next week to Alaska. And so I knew that she was probably going to have problems at customs. She had a few random boat parts, too. All in all, it was like two suitcases just full of junk. And so I told her, I said, whatever you do, like when you come through there, you know, look for the little guy. I told her the guy's name, who to look for as one of the baggage assistants. Because they have these guys that run around work for tips. And they'll grab your bag off the carousel and then carry it out for you and help you load it in your car. So I told her who to look for. And I knew it probably wouldn't work out for her. So she gets there and she asks around for the guy that I always use and he's not there. So she gets another random guy. He helps her. I see her going through the x-ray machine and I see them pull her aside to the, we're going to search your bag and then try to find you table. And so I see her over there with her hands on her hips, you know, looking at them, probably in the same way that I would be, because I would assume that I get my frustration from her a little bit. And so I see her and I'm like, oh no, they got her. So I told her, I said, whatever they do, if they pull you aside, just don't speak, don't even try to speak Spanish, which... She can speak about enough Spanish to order a margarita at a Mexican food restaurant. So it wasn't like I had to tell her not to. Just I wanted to make sure she didn't try to communicate. And sure enough, that's what happened. I could tell through body language that the people behind the customs table, what I call the the bribe area, were kind of getting frustrated because she had no idea what they were saying and they had no idea what she was saying. So it worked out fine. They ended up just zipping her bags back up and telling her to go. And so she came out and didn't have to pay anyone any quote-unquote taxes for importation of goods. And we loaded up into the car and came back to San Juan del Sur. The first couple of days she was here was kind of just, we were adjusting. We were just chilling, letting her get the feel of how things work and how late I sleep <laughs> compared to back home. I don't always sleep that late, but I've been staying up extremely late lately due to a specific person talking to me on the phone. And that person knows who they are. So after she got adjusted for a couple of days, we decided to put together a game plan. And we knew that she wanted to go sailing as much as possible. The boat had to leave to go to Costa Rica for a few days. And so we decided to go sailing and then take a trip to Ometepe. And Ometepe is an island that's in the middle of Lake Nicaragua, which is a gigantic lake in Nicaragua. And so you can take a ferry over to this island and they have hotels and some outdoor activities and stuff you can do. So we decided we were going to do that. So we had a couple of days to kill between the time that we decided what we we're going to do and the time to go there. So I just had to do you know random things throughout the day. But one of the days that she rode around with me, she kind of got a taste of what life is like down here trying to do an activity that you would take for granted back in the States. And in this case, that particular activity would be getting a document scanned and emailed to someone. And if you've never spent any time in Nicaragua or Central America or a third world country, you're thinking, why is that an ordeal? Like everyone has a scanner. You scan it and you email it. Well, here, everyone does not have a scanner. Everyone does not have a printer. In fact, I, I would say that of all the people that live in San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua, maybe 3% of businesses and or people have a scanning and faxing and in copying capabilities. So I know I've mentioned before that I'm in the process of getting my residency here. 
And what that takes is a constant barrage of sending documents to someone. Half the time, I don't know where they are. I don't know where to get them. They've been lost. They were for the boat. We've had them three years ago. And nobody knows where to find them. So this particular case, I needed documents to send to the girl, Patricia, who's handling the residency. And the documents were the Articles of Incorporation for the Nicaraguan Company. And apparently, those are worth more than your life. Because I contacted my friend Gio and explained to him, hey, this lady needs these Articles of Incorporation and I don't have them. And he was like, what do you mean you don't have them? And I was like, oh, they're, they're lost. And he was like, uh, you cannot lose those. And I said, oh, well, I lost them. What do I do now? And he, he just talked to me like I was a four-year-old. You can't lose those papers. They're super important. You have to have them forever, the originals. And I said, okay, I know that now. He says, go find a copy from your accountant. He'll have a copy of them and try to use those for your residency. See if they work. If they don't work, you'll have to go to the courthouse in Rivas, pull the original that's on file there, and get a certified copy. And that, to me, sounds like absolute hell. So I contact the accountant, get him to leave the copies at a friend of mine's business. I go there, I pick them up, and I'm like, man, I'm just going to take a photo of these with my phone and send them to her because I don't I want to have to go track down a scanner. So I did that. Since took 17 pages worth of photos, sent them all to her, and then she writes back, oh, I'm sorry, the attorney that we're working with says that you have to have a real scanned copy, that the photos aren't good enough. Now, now they didn't want the originals yet. They just wanted just a real scanned copy. So I said, okay. I set out on the town, and there's a couple little like cyber cafes that do contract scanning and printing and emailing for you. So I set out on town to go try to find one of these, and... Once again, it's just, it's such a small town, but, and you see store names and you see the signs of them, but you're not exactly sure where in town it was. So what you do is like, you recall your memory, you, you picture the sign, then you go in there and try to find that sign. And it's not hard to drive all over town because it's such a small area, but it, it can be frustrating. And here's why. So I go to one place where I know for sure they do scanning and I get there and they're closed. So I said, okay. Then I go to start trying to drive down the road and I'm looking for another spot. I see one and I throw the truck and park, hop out. I run in there. I'm like, I need 17 pages scanned. And they said, okay, where's your flash drive? And I was like, oh crap. I don't have a flash drive. Can you just email them to me? Of course, the answer was no. They cannot because they don't have internet at the cyber cafe on that day. And I thought, is it really just today? Or is your internet bill unpaid and it's turned off? So I said, okay. So I go to the store to buy a flash drive. And I can't remember the last time I bought a flash drive. So maybe I'm just out of touch with reality. But this was a 16 gig flash drive and it was like $24. And I don't know, maybe that's right, but I just seem to think that I could probably buy that at Amazon for like five bucks. Because 16 gigs is not that much space anymore. So I fork over the 20 whatever dollars, go back to the cyber place, get out the papers, and they say, oh no, sorry, we can't scan those. And I was like, <laughs> I almost didn't even ask why, I almost just stormed out. But I was like, why not? And because they were legal size paper. 
They, their scanner only had the little bed. I mean, this scanner looked like it was from 1994. Had like two buttons on it. And you stick the flash drive into the scanner. So I was like, okay, whatever. Go to the next spot. They're also closed. So that's three. Keep in mind that all the streets in the town are one way. And they all kind of direct you to the point in the town where you have to go all the way back around town and come back through. So now we're going on like four trips through town and it's hot and I'm getting frustrated and my mom's in the car with me and she can tell I'm getting frustrated and she had some of her own errands that she needed to run too. But I wanted to get the scanning done. I wanted to go drop it off, let the scanning commence and then be able to come back and pick it up. So my mom said, uh, why don't you just take it to the real estate place where I go and like pay my rent. They, they manage the house that I live in. And I said, no, I don't want to go there because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to walk in. They're not going to know how to work the scanner. I'm going to have to show them how, and it's just not going to work. So she's like, okay. So I find another place, and they can't do it either. They can't fit the legal size paper in their scanner. So I think there's just on like place number four. I kind of lost track now, but either way, it was a total of five places. So then I go, I was like, you know what? I saw the real estate agent walking down the road. And I rolled down my window and I was like, hey, Natalie, do you guys have capability to scan at your office? And she was like, yeah, sure. Just go in there and so-and-so will help you out. I said, can you scan legal size paper? She goes, yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. So I go in there. I go up to the girl at the desk. I explain to her what I needed. And she's like, okay. And I could tell she wasn't real confident in her ability to operate the scanner. But by this point, I'm ready to sit there and hold her hand through the entire process and get my scanning done. So we start playing with the scanner, and all of the scanner's directions are in Spanish. So I don't know enough Spanish to understand, like, the screen of a fax-slash-copy machine Spanish. And so we're trying to figure it out. Of course, the scanning bed was too small for the legal size documents, but the, this one actually had a document feeder. So we're sitting there trying to get it out to how to figure out to read the feeder, and it's, it's just wanting to scan in the bed. So finally, I said, okay, after like 15 minutes, I said, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I got to go. I'll figure something else out. So I grab everything, and I leave. And that was it. I had to be done for the day. I could not do any more scanning or attempting to scan. I think it took a total of about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, before I gave up. And I think from now on, what I'm going to start doing is just playing on that amount of time. And I'm going to think to myself, okay, it's going to take me two hours to do this. Is there a different way? that I can do it. So I ended up getting some app on my iPad that allows you to take a photo and it turns it into a PDF. And so I did that and sent it to her. And now she's saying that it's missing a page, but she can't tell me what page it is, but she can just tell me that it's the official page with the official stamp. And she cannot send me a picture of an example either. So we're kind of at a gridlock. I'm about to just give up on the residency. And, and I, if I don't give up, this probably won't be the first time that I say I'm going to give up. So a couple of days goes by, and then we set out for our trip to the island of Ometepe. And so the way you get there is you, go, you leave San Juan del Sur, you drive to this little town called San Jorge, and then you get on a ferry that's about an hour, hour and 10-minute ferry ride to Ometepe. And so growing up, like I've gone to Galveston, I've been on ferries, Mobile Bay, like I'm pretty used to driving a vehicle on a ferry. But this ferry was not your average ferry that you'd see in the U.S. It was about a quarter of the size. And so there's a, just one gate. You know, most ferries, you pull on forward and then you pull off forward. Well, not this one. There's only one gate 
that allowed you to go on or off. And so they just kind of pull up to a ramp. It's no different than a boat ramp. And they drop the drawbridge gate deal and you drive across that. But you don't pull in forward. You back it in. So that way when you pull out, you can pull out forward because the boat has to turn around when they get there. So, and the, the, the ferries are only big enough for like five or six cars. And then there's also a bunch of random people that just go on foot, bicycles, whatever. So we pull up the ferry. We made our reservations a day in advance and they're starting to load us on and they tell everyone to spin around and going backwards. So I did. And they packed the cars on there so tight that I could barely even open the door to get out. And I'm thinking... This is not a safe position to be in because if this ferry goes down, it's going to be pretty tough for me to get this door open. I figured I could always jump across and get out the passenger side, but that's assuming that my mom can get out first. So we back in there, we get situated, and the boat pulls away, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, they're going to raise that little ramp that you know lowers down. It's like an old rickety chain in a hydraulic pump that was just leaking hydraulic fluid everywhere. And so we get out there, we're going and we're going, and the gate doesn't come up and it doesn't come up. And I'm thinking, well, I guess you're not going to raise this thing. So we sat there the entire time, like the hour and 10-minute trip across this giant lake with like three-foot swells with the, with the gate down. So we're basically sitting eye level with the water, just looking out. And so I reached down and I double-checked the parking brake and I put it in gear. My mom was like, thank you. <laughs> but it's just funny to see how like they get by with that and in the States, like how many people would be screaming potential lawsuits if they did it. And I much prefer this way. Weed out the dumb people, make things dangerous, and the dumb people go away. So we get there, and we set out for the hotel. And I didn't realize how big this island was, but it's like two, I want to say 200 and something square miles. And so it was a pretty good trek from where we got off the boat to the hotel. And uh, it was like an hour and 20-minute trek. Most of it was unpaved roads, and uh, it, they were super rough. But eventually, I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go fast. Because if you go fast enough, the bumps get absorbed, and you don't really feel them. So we're going, and we're, there's this guy in the middle of nowhere. He's hitchhiking, asking for a ride. So a lot of times, I'll just pull over, and they just hop in the back of the truck. So that's what I did. And he was riding back there, and he was kind of crouching down with his head just above the top of the cab where he can kind of see what's going ahead of us. And so, you know, these guys are used to riding the back of the truck, so I didn't really slow down much. I just kept my speed up. And I hit this drainage ditch that, I mean, we must have looked like the Dukes of Hazard when we came out of that thing. My mom's, like, going forward saying, oh, shit, and I'm, like, trying to keep my head from hitting the top of the ceiling. And I look back, and this guy's feet are in my rearview mirror. <laughs> And his arms are up in the air, and we all come down together. And we all hit the ground, and the truck suspension collapses, and this guy kind of crumbles up into the bed. <laughs> and I got this dirty look from my mom, and I suspected if the guy in the back of the truck could look at me too, he would have given me a dirty look. But he stayed sitting down. He didn't, he didn't do the crouch motion after that. So we got him to his spot, and he thanked me and went on about his way. But that's just one of the many stories of guys just hopping in the back of the truck and the experience that comes with that. So we finally get to the hotel, and by the time we get there, it, it turned, you know, it's one hour drive to Rivas or to San Jorge, where the ferry is, and then it's one hour from San Jorge to Moya Galpa, and then one hour from Moya Galpa, which is on the island of Ometepe, to our hotel. So theoretically, it should have taken three hours. But in typical Nicaragua fashion, 
when you're estimating time in Nicaragua, you need like a 40% error margin. And so it ended up taking five hours. From the time we left my house to the time we got to the hotel, it was five hours. So we were pretty exhausted, didn't do much. Each went to our rooms, uh, came out for dinner, and we were having a nice dinner until about halfway through it, these two guys with guitars showed up. Well, one guy had a guitar. The other guy didn't have anything. And, and they started playing this music. And there's a group of like 20 people were there with him. And they were all participating. And I've never heard a group of 20 people be as loud as these people were. I mean, they were singing and clapping as loud as possible to the point where it was frustrating trying to have dinner with my mom. And it wasn't good music that you would know and be able to kind of sing along to and, and bob your head. It was what sounded to me like Nicaragua's version of child like nursery rhyme songs. Like I could see it being like Old MacDonald and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And they were cranking them out one after another from like 6.30 p.m. until like 11 p.m. And at the hotel, all the rooms are like little cabins, so they're all detached. And I was probably 100 yards away from the music festivities, and it sounded like they were in my bathroom. I really, it, it was one of the loudest, strangest things I've ever seen in my life. But you know what? It makes Nicaragua, Nicaragua. And then those guys, we, we kept seeing them all weekend long or the, for the duration that we were there. And my mom nicknamed the guy Loudmouth, the, the guy that was leading the, the party. So we decided the next day that we were going to go hike to this waterfall on the island of Ometepe. The island is made up of two volcanoes. One of them is considered active. The other one's considered inactive. But either way, there's some cool stuff you can do and see and rivers and volcano crater lakes and stuff like that. So one of the things that everyone does is hike up to this waterfall. And I asked my mom, I said, what do you want to do? And she's like, I'd kind of like to hike to the waterfall. And uh, I was like, well, it's up to you. I mean, I think it's a good, it's a good clip. You know, everyone says it's like a 30, 45 minute hike and it's uphill the whole way. And so she was like, I think I can do it. And I said, okay, that's fine. We'll go. We should probably make it the first thing we do of the day. So if we get too worn out, we can just be, be done for the rest of the day and we'll have enough energy to, to finish the trek. So we kind of talked to the little waiter guy and get some feedback. We talked to a couple other people. And much like you would expect, we got different answers from different people. One guy said it's about a 30-minute hike. The other guy said it's about an hour-and-a-half hike. The guy who said it's an hour-and-a-half hike said it's, it's pretty simple. It's, it's no big deal. The guy who said it's a 30- or 45-minute hike said, ah, it's pretty tough. Like you, it's, it's, it's a good hike. So I left it up to my mom and she said, yep, let's do it. I said, okay. So it ended up taking us about two hours to make it to the top. And my poor mom, I, I pushed her, but I knew she could do it. And a couple of times she wanted to quit, but she stuck in there, man. She was a trooper and she made it all the way to the top. And then I said, well, now you can't quit. We got to go home. So we made our way back down. It took us about an hour and 10 minutes, I think, to get down, maybe a little longer. But after that, the, the day was over. It was done. We weren't doing anything else. And I knew that. I, she was like, my legs are jello. I can barely stand up. And so we were, like, joking about it. And we got home, and I said, okay, we can be done for the day. And she said, I don't, I don't think they're going to be that sore. And in the next morning, I said, how are your legs feeling? She goes, they're, they're pretty sore but not unbearable. And I said, just wait till tomorrow. And she's like, well, they won't be as sore tomorrow. And I said, oh, no, they're going to be more sore tomorrow. And sure enough, the next day she was, oh, ow, ah, 
uh, everywhere she walked. And I said, man, I've been there so many times. But I give her props because she hung in there and she finished. And that was a pretty big accomplishment. Okay, I've got a pig update. So when we started this whole thing, I told Ronnie that I was going to kind of keep track of all the numbers and kind of show it to him. And we're going to talk about it as we went. So we just finished the first bag of feed. And I came back and looked at the spreadsheet. And what I put together was a spreadsheet that showed, according to what most pig raisers say, a pig can digest and add to muscle. The most efficient is like 5% of their body weight per day. So that's the schedule that I used to project out how much feed we were going to use and how much money we're going to spend throughout the process. So we finished the first bag. It's a 100-pound bag, and I went back and looked at it. And according to the numbers that I've got, by now we should have only gone through 60 pounds of food. So we overshot our food by like 70% or something like that. It's where we're at now. So I said, man, now's the time to talk to Ronnie. I got to show this to him and explain to him and show him the numbers so he understands it. So he was kind of around the house. says, hey, come here, come here, sit down, set him down in front of the computer. And I showed him this little Excel spreadsheet. I don't know how much of it he got. I know he understood the part about here's how much we spent. Here's how much we should have spent. We're going backwards if we, if we stay on this rate. And so I reiterated to him how the whole thing was going to work, that I would pay for everything up front. We would repay me for all the expenses, any profit we would split. But I showed him that if we stick on this rate, we're going to lose about 150 to $200 per pig. And he was like, well, if we lose that much, I can't pay for it. And I said, I know, I know. Like, it's, it's going to all fall on me if we lose money. So that's why I want to make sure you understand that we can't feed them too much food. So I think he's getting it. He said he's going to cut him back a little bit. And he was really excited to see how the numbers worked and went together. At least I think he was. He was asking some questions. He was like, oh, this is kind of like a, like a hotel when you have to keep track of your labor and all your expenses. And I said, yeah, it's exactly the same way. It's just it's different. It's a different business. He's like, okay, yeah, I, I get it. So we'll see. When the next 100-pound bag is gone, we'll have an idea of whether or not he stuck to it. And the pig's are also now eating from the hand. So you walk up to the pen, and if, if they're sleeping and they see you walk up out of the corner of their eye, they just wake up and scatter like cockroaches. And then they realize, wait a minute, when this happens, normally they give me some food. So then they all come running back to the fence and stick their noses up to it. Then you can put your hand on there and they'll easily eat out of your hand. So that's my mom's fault. I know I said I was going to do it, and then I kind of chickened out and didn't want to do it, so I didn't get too close to them. But my mom was like out there every morning feeding the pigs from her hands. And so now I kind of I kind of will do it too, I'm sure. I know I've mentioned before about the advantages or the, the special treatment that gringos get down here. Most people really, like most of the locals, they admire anything first world and they love anything to do with gringos or the U.S. or North America. And so that really plays to our advantage. And here's an example of that. And a friend of mine calls it the gringo advantage. But we were going sailing the other day, and I took Bentley and Bronco with me. And this is the second time this has happened. But as you walk through the gates at the port office to get out to the, the bay, there's a security guard there. And they don't look at dogs the same way that we do in the States. They're kind of just used to guard your property. And none of them are well-behaved. So I go walking through the gate, and a lot of the security guards don't don't know me yet just because I haven't gone on the boat enough to meet them all. So I walk through there and they're like, no, no, stop. No dogs allowed. 
And I just kept walking. I was like, no, no, they're going with me. They're going to my boat out there. They're going to be fine. He's like, there's no dogs allowed in the port. I looked at him and said, hey, man, it's fine. These dogs are well-behaved. I'm, I'm going to be okay. I'm going straight to the water taxi. I'm going straight to my boat. And he was like, okay, and just let me go. And I, I think that they're probably not used to someone saying, no, no, they'll be fine. Like that probably caught him off guard. Combined with the gringo advantage, you know, I think they're a little bit intimidated by some of us just because we carry ourselves in such a more like assertive and confident way when it comes to dealing with someone with authority compared to the Nicaraguan culture who typically, unless they're just a real shady individual, they respect authority and they don't challenge any of the rules. And so I think that catches them off guard. And I think also that they understand that gringos typically, that we don't steal, we don't mean harm, we just want to do our thing. And so I think the combination of all that is what led him just be like, fine, just go. I'm sure it'll be okay. And who knows, like he probably thinks his job was in jeopardy, but he was willing to look past it because of the gringo advantage. The other day was a holiday, and I don't know what the holiday was or what it celebrates or the significance or anything, and I normally don't. We just call it holiday roulette. And so a lot of times you figure out it's a holiday whenever you need to do something and the place is closed. But we were sitting around the other night having drinks, and my friend Lindsay was like, I think it was like Saturday night or Sunday night. She's like, I think Monday's a holiday. And I was like, what is it? And everyone's like, I have no idea. So you just look for little signs around town that it's about to be a holiday. And so we were explaining this to my mom, how even a lot of the locals, like the Nicaraguans, they know it's a holiday. They know they don't have work, but they're not exactly sure why. And so I know that could be the case in the U.S. too for some of the obscure holidays. But here, it's, it's a majority of them. They don't really know why or what they're doing. So I was, we were explaining it to my mom and she's like, how do they not know the holiday? And I said, I don't know. They just, they never know. And so in order to illustrate that, my friend Lindsay said, watch. And the bartender, the, the waiter came and she was like, is tomorrow a holiday? And the lady was like, yeah, it's like patron saint, blah, blah, blah of whatever day. And so we asked her, well, well how did that get started? Or what's the origin of it? Or what how does it work? And of course she was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And they probably think we're weird for asking so many questions, but I just find it so interesting that a majority of the time when I ask them, they don't really know what it is. So we just play holiday roulette when it's a holiday and you need to do something. It's a perfect excuse for not doing it. And they, they do the exact same thing. Another thing I did with my mom, which it was a huge surprise to everyone and if you know my mom, you'll, you'll understand why. But her friend, Carol, who was also my realtor in Texas, and also my mom's realtor too, was in town visiting with her son and her son's girlfriend. And so we all kind of decided that we were going to take the moms to Sunday Funday just for shock value. Like, I don't think, I knew for a fact my mom was going to be down there partying with backpackers covered in glitter. But I just wanted to see her reaction. And so we took them there. And I, I kind of thought it was going to be, okay, we're going to kind of drag them there, kicking and screaming. They're going to watch, see these people for 10 minutes and be ready to go. But my mom and her friend Carol walked in before we did. And as you walk in, they just pour a free shot in your mouth if you want it. And without even thinking, like, I was like, oh, yeah, she's just going to walk past that. Well, we walked to the gate, and we see my, my mom and my friend Rusty's mom back there with her heads back, taking a shot out of a bottle from someone standing on a chair. And I was like, man, this 
is what I was hoping to see, but wasn't counting on it. And so we get up there and they have the best time like up you know, on the balcony away from the madness. Well, we spent a little bit of time down in the madness, but then they were both like, okay, we're ready to go up there now. So we walked up this balcony and whenever young people see older people at Sunday fun day, they automatically are drawn to them and they love them and they give them attention. It's not like they think that they're dorky old people crashing a party. Like they know the situation. They know that it's just like fun and someone probably brought them there. So whenever they're spotted, like everyone gives them attention and they're like high fiving them. And so they had the best time up on the balcony, just like with everyone waving at them and throwing stuff to them and, Someone would be down below and I'd look up and my mom's like pouring rum into some crazy backpacker's mouth. And I thought, man, I never thought the day that I would see this happening. But they had a really good time. They both got a little bit tipsy. They didn't get backpacker drunk, but they had a couple drinks and they were primed up and ready to go eat pizza. So that's what we did after we left. We didn't even go to the other two stops. We went straight from the first stop to the sober Sober up pizza place. But it was a good step. Maybe next time they come down, we can do two or more stops and end up at like the late night sober me up taco place. Okay, it's time for the dog story of the day or of the week or week and a half or two weeks. But every day, not every day, most of the time I take the dogs down to the beach around sunset to throw the ball for them to wear them out and get them some exercise. And so they love it. They get really excited. But as we get closer into town, and they ride in the back of the truck, and it's not a far drive. So they ride in the back of the truck, and they start getting really excited as we get closer into town. And what they start doing is they just lean their heads out the side, and they just bark their heads off as loud as they can. And Bentley's like this real high-pitched, shrill, squeaky bark. And Bronco's like this real loud, deep Labrador bark. And so now... We draw so much attention. Like they they bark and everyone's like looking like what in the world? And so now people expect it and they see it and they just smile and point. And even other dogs that are in town hear us coming and I'll see them run out to the road and start looking back and forth until they spot my truck. And then they run at my truck as fast as they can. And my dogs are barking at them from the truck and they're barking at my dogs. And it's this huge ruckus. And I don't know how far it's going to go. I can't see it getting much more wild than what it is now. But just picture like this little truck driving through town with one dog hanging out each side, both dogs barking as loud as they can and just echoing between these buildings that are real close together. And that's me driving to the beach every day at about 5.30. And all I can do is laugh. There's no way I can correct the dogs. I can't change their behavior. And I just got to roll with it. But it's, it's getting out of control and hilarious. All right. I think that's going to wrap up today's show. Thanks for listening. Life in Paradise podcast. Check out our website, nikasaleandsurf.com. Thanks for listening. Keep it tranquilo. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Spending from school. Scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister. Over the years, we was poor and other little kids. And even though we had different daddies, the same drama when things went wrong, we blame mama. I reminisce on the stress I caused. It was hell, hugging on my mama from a jail cell. And who thinking elementary? Hey, I see the penitentiary one day. Running from the police, that's right. Mama catch me, put a whoop into my backside. And even as a crack fiend, mama, you always was the black queen. 
mama. I finally understand for a woman it ain't easy trying to raise a man. You always was committed. A poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did it. There's no way I can pay you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. Tell us it was fair No love for my daddy Cause the coward wasn't there He passed away And I didn't cry Cause my anger Wouldn't let me feel For a stranger They say I'm wrong And I'm heartless But all along I was looking for a father He was gone I hung around with the thugs And even though they sold drugs They showed a young brother love I moved out Started really hanging I needed money of my own So I started slanging I ain't guilty Cause even though I sell rocks Feels good putting money in your mailbox. I love paying rent when the rent's due. I hope you got the diamond necklace that I sent to you. Cause when I was low, you was there for me. You never left me alone because you cared for me. And I can see you coming home after work late. You're in the kitchen trying to fix us a hot plate. You're just working with the scraps you was given. And mama made miracles every Thanksgiving. But now the road got rough, you're alone. Trying to raise two bad kids on your own And there's no way I can pay you back But my plan is to show you that I understand You are